I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, the podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is we're covering the topic of Enigma. This is the highly difficult to crack code that the Germans used during World War Two. But we're going to tell it through three movies, and then I'm going to actually tell you what actually happened. Because what's interesting is these three movies are not particularly well regarded, even though one of them nearly won the star of the movie an Oscar. So let's get into the actual movies. I'm going to do them in terms of when they were released, but let's also start with the worst one. So in the year 2000, the movie U571 comes out, and this is about the story of two submarines, a US one and a German one. The German is a U-boat, so hence the U-571, and they go head-to-head, and eventually the Americans win the day, and they manage to capture an Enigma machine, which helps the boffins at Bletchley Park Station X crack the code. More on that in a minute. Then let's go to 2001 with the movie called Enigma. Pretty unambiguous there. That stars Doug Ray Scott and Kate Winslet, and they basically have a bit of a romance, as well as also cracking the codes at Bletchley Park, also known as Station X. Then there's a bit of a gap, and then in 2014, we get the Imitation Game, which is about Alan Turing, the man who was the main brains behind the world's first programmable computer, which helped crack the Enigma code. Benedict Cumberbatch is the one that gets nominated for an Oscar, I watched it and thought it was a really impressive performance, but he might have had some, if you like, mental issues, but he was picked at the post by Eddie Redmayne, who got to be in a wheelchair for Stephen Hawking. It was the year of British boffins and Hawking trumped Turing, what can I say? And there we go. So so that's what happened there. So you're getting kind of three very different ways of looking at the same incredibly important moment in World War Two. I'm also going to do a shout out here because this is an example of somebody who came to me with a request. This time round, it was Greg, who is the editor of this podcast, so I have to do what he says. He's a dream. He's holding me hostage here. He makes me sound good. Oh sound really bad. So thank you very much, Greg, you know I love you. So anyway, 
let's get into the the movies because it is interesting how they have all taken a slightly different tact and they are definitely of very different qualities as i just mentioned Cumberbatch is a sort of hot favorite to win an oscar he doesn't actually win an oscar for the role we'll actually come back to the problems of that role but going back to u571 though boy was that a mixed bag of a starring crew so Perhaps the headlight star was Matthew McConaughey, but this was kind of before the McConaissance, as it was called. That was going to perhaps kick in about 10 years later. And McConaughey at this point is very much deep into his rom-com himbo-type image. And we all know that he can act. His sort of his breakout role, A Time to Kill, sort of showed everybody, oh my goodness, who is this young man? And what a sensational movie, what a sensational performance. But then he kind of squandered it for a decade where basically he was very good-looking, and he is a good-looking guy, and he's got great abs, but he was in some pretty poor films. This, I have to say, is one of them, because you've got McConaughey, who is a legit actor, shall we say. It's got Harvey Keitel in it, another great actor there. He's still sort of hot off his resurrection in the 1990s with the likes of Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction. Then you've also got Bill Paxton, a great character actor, sadly taken away from us too soon. And then... John Bon Jovi. Now, I love a bit of John Bon Jovi, but I don't think anybody's going to turn around and say John Bon Jovi is going to be worrying the Oscars anytime soon. And while he plays it completely straight in this movie, he's distracting. It's it's like, what's the rock star doing in the submarine? If you know, it's Harvey Keitel because he's a, just a great actor and can morph into almost anything. You absolutely buy that he's you know, a senior officer on a submarine, but that doesn't necessarily... No, he may never have been in a submarine his entire life, but you buy it. But just Bon Jovi standing there, you're half expecting him to hum living on a prayer in the background or something. It's just weird. It is a weird cast, okay? Now, the story, as I said, is basically one submarine versus another submarine. This is quite a standard. These sort of sweaty submarine thrillers there are loads of them that have been around for 60, 70 years. If you like, it's the perfect environment. We talk about, like, pressure cooker thrillers. Well, there can't be more pressure than literally being in a pressurised metal tube at the bottom of the ocean. We could be way back to things like Enemy Below, or it could be Crimson Tide, Hunt for Red October, Canine Widowmaker. There are just loads of these movies which sort of are of varying quality, but almost all of them. Das Boot is probably the, the greatest of them all, and is obviously also set in World War Two. They are just, you know, you feel for these people. Some of them are more realistic than others. It's almost like a cheat code. It's sort of like, well, we want everybody to feel under threatened, we want everybody to feel pressurized, so let's stick them in a submarine where, if anything goes wrong, they get crushed by the ocean and nobody even gets their bodies. You know, they're just left languishing at the bottom of the deep blue sea. And so U571, if you just take it for what it is and compare it to something like Hunt for Red October, it's a perfectly serviceable submarine thriller. But it's sticking itself into World War Two, and now we have some problems, because there are so many of these submarine versus submarine thrillers out there, you might assume that that happened fairly often. Not true. In the entirety of World War Two, 
there was only one sub-to-sub clash, which was towards the end of the war. It was between a British submarine and a German submarine, a U-boat. The other thing about U-boats that's worth pointing out is, yes, they were submersible. They submerged under the water. But this idea that they could go down a thousand feet and stuff like that, no. The, the technology basically wasn't there. And actually, they tempted to run on both. Well, when they were underwater, they ran on electric engines. Those electric motors will run out of juice at some point. They couldn't possibly cross the Atlantic that way. So they also had diesel engines as well. So most of the time on a U-boat, you wouldn't be underwater. You'd actually be on the surface, which allows you to be resupplied with food and water and well, drinkable water. Obviously, they're surrounded by the stuff, but that's salt water. You can't drink that. So, you know, fresh supplies, fresh ammunition and equipment, new torpedoes, etc., which could be dropped in by airplane. So all of that is why they were on the ocean surface. But obviously, when they started to see things like a Allied convoy, they'd go underwater and then they'd start hunting in a wolf pack. That is the basic summary of the Atlantic War in World War II. But what we've got here is something that is referencing real history. There was indeed a clash between a maritime vessel and a U-boat, which ended up getting boarded and they ended up getting the Enigma machine, which absolutely did help the effort of trying to crack the code. So, Jeb, what's the problem? Well, the movie of U-571 is set in the spring of 1942. Don't forget, America only joined World War II in December 1941. So there weren't a load of US submarines going around the Atlantic in the spring of 42. It would take longer to sort of get fully engaged with the war. That's part one. But part two, the thing that they are referencing happened in May of 1941, when HMS Bulldog met a U-boat and everything I've just described happened. Basically, there was a battle between the two of them, and indeed, most battles with submarines were with, with surface ships, and that's what HMS Bulldog was, and they managed to cripple the U-boat, and they managed to get in, they managed to get the Enigma code out, the Enigma book, and also the actual machine itself. So, Jem, I hear you say, what's the biggie? Well, HMS is his majesty's ship so that's british it's something from the royal navy and as i just made passing reference to this happened in may of 1941 it would be six months slightly longer actually until america would even join the war america was a neutral country in may of 1941 indeed even the soviet union had yet to be attacked in may 1941 pretty much the only power that was fighting against access in may of 1941 was Britain. So to therefore switch it to the Americans and then sort of like make out that the Americans did all this stuff caused a huge furore. It made its money back globally. It did, let's say, well. It didn't blow the doors off the box office in America, but it did well. It definitely made a profit while it had its cinematic release. But when it was going to be released in the UK, there was I'm going to say an understandable outcry about this. And in the end, the makers had to add, uh, you know, at the end of these sort of historical movies, quite often you have like a page of information which kind of either tells you what happened next or what really happened. Well, in this case, they had to say what really happened. And basically after this exciting submarine movie with John Bon Jovi living on a submarine, they actually then flash up that it was all down to HMS Bulldog and basically undermining the last two hours that you watched. In other words, this one page of text saying, yeah, you know that film you just watched? None of that happened that way and nothing to do with America. So you, 
pretty much swept the legs out from underneath it. It absolutely tanked in Britain. Nobody went to see it. It was kind of like almost an offence. It was even mentioned in the Houses of Parliament. And I know a number of people. I'm a little bit more open about this as a conversation, but I know a number of Brits who are extremely annoyed that there was this spate in the 90s into the 2000s of a lot of World War II films which were exclusively about America, as if nobody else got to fight in World War II. I'm going to say that balance has sort of evened out a little bit since then, but I absolutely take the point. America absolutely did win World War II, but they joined late, and therefore, and they suffered far less damage than somewhere like France or Britain or indeed Germany. The point is, it's just a, a skewing. It's sort of like, well, America always wins. You could be cynical for a moment and say it's easy to win a war if you wait two years to join into it and let everybody else do hard fighting. I digress. So you can see that U571, I mean, if you really want to watch it, knock yourself out, but be aware that none of it actually happened. It wasn't even the right U-boat. I don't know why they picked U571. The actual U-boat that HMS Bulldog went up against was U110, 110, for reasons beyond my understanding. But then we go to 2001's Enigma, and as I mentioned, there's a bit of, sort of like a love story going on in there. And this was the first time we really got to see Bletchley Park, and also known as Station X, that was kind of its code name during World War II. And we start seeing the different cabins, which are sort of full of people. And this is great news, this is one of the few stories of World War II where there's a huge amount of women involved in it. So, you know, in total war, it's very easy to sort of say, well, you know, where are the women? Where Where's the diversity and things like that? But the reality is the British army was 99% white. Obviously, when it came to colonial troops, people from the West Indies and things like that, yes, there were people of colour. There were literally hundreds of thousands of people of colour in the British army out in Asia. Things like India, for example, has having to fight the Japanese. So, yes, but in terms of things like Dunkirk, there was genuinely, I saw some people online going, there's a lot of white people in this film, because that's what those shores were actually covered with. Hundreds of thousands of white guys. There weren't a lot of women there or people of colour. That's just a historical fact. But anyway, back to Enigma, what's good news for modern viewership is it's not just a bunch of young white men running around the place. There's white women too. The thing about this is, and it reminded me of a TV miniseries about the Nuremberg trials. And basically, in that, I mean, look, the Nuremberg trials, which kind of brought to the world the actual hard evidence of the Holocaust, it's a story in and of itself. It's kind of an unprecedented time. There were actually previous war crimes trials. They actually started in the Middle Ages. But anyway, I'm not going to go into that. But the point is, you know, this was filmed and sort of spread to the world. You saw some of these people like Goering literally in the dock. And it has a very important place in legal history, in military history, in understanding Europe and the modern world. It's incredibly important. It doesn't need any embellishment. So when we start getting a bit of a side story about a love story, Okay, it's done fine, but it's not necessary. I, I'm already gripped. You don't need to add that on. And it's almost like it's just absolutely dwarfed by the real drama going on there. And you could say the same thing about Enigma. It's like, yes, you know, Kate Winslet is an amazing actress. You've got Dougray Scott. He's always solid. Kate Winslet is, you know, wins in the fight between those two and their acting abilities. But, you know, he's obviously an Oscar winner. But the point is, it's like, okay, you're bringing to life this. And what's interesting is one of the people that actually 
got involved in financing this was Mick Jagger. He's one of these people that in the 60s, obviously, is seen as anti-establishment and, you know, it's all like kind of dangerous and all that kind of stuff. But he is of that generation that grew up and, you know, had family members, direct family members involved in the war and is proud of British achievements in World War II. And so he used some of his rock and roll money to show, actually, Enigma is quite an old-fashioned film. It doesn't have amazing direction or anything like that, anything weird and wacky. It's not exactly everything everywhere all at once or anything like that. So it's kind of, it's solid, if you like. It's a solid, reliable, it is an Audi of a movie rather than a Ferrari of a movie. And it did fine at the box office, but it also had a much lower budget than U571. It's an example of a, one of those well-crafted British films that kind of hits its niche and spreads around the world to those sorts of people who like those sort of... It is basically a costume drama, after all. There's not a lot of action in it or anything like that. And then we come to the imitation game. Obviously, I'm going to go into the whole history bit of it later on, and imitation game is a clever name for this movie. But in 2014, when I heard that this was coming out, it's like, oh, after those other two misfires, maybe we'll get it right this time. But I remember it being reviewed by somebody who is a historian about ciphers and codes. And basically they said the two things they got right was that Alan Turing worked at Bletchley Park and the Germans used the Enigma machine. Well, OK, well done for nailing those two facts then. I, I guess that's actually technically more than U571, but that's it. So my understanding of that part of the war... I needed to read more after that because I thought the movie was pretty good, but then I realised it really plays fast and loose with all kinds of things. But of course, if you like something like Saving Private Ryan, we all get the fact that if they don't get off that beach, they're going to die. You know, we, we, we may not necessarily be in a combat zone, but we understand guns can be dangerous and can kill people, and we therefore need to get into cover and away from the people firing the guns. Whereas understanding the mathematical complexities of something like Enigma, that's a different story entirely. And so, if you like, it's intellectual. It's trying to work things. It's a bit like when you see there's that montage in a movie when somebody's got to write a speech or write a book and you see them sort of walking around like, no, 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 I don't know, I don't know how to do this. And they throw pieces of paper away. And it's, it's sort of like very physical, which is not what happens when you're actually writing. Another example is hacking. Basically, you put in a code and you let the program run and then you eventually break down the defenses and you get in there. But instead, it's in movie land. It's how fast you can type. That is not how you hack. So I'm not going to go into how you do hack. I have actually worked for an organization that deals with hacking white hats gray hats black hats etc firewalls digital security all that good stuff but that's another one where it's like it's intellectual which isn't very pleasing on the screen so i guess you got to give them something so let's have these two gorgeous people catching in each other's eyes over an abacus they didn't actually use abacuses in Enigma and in the case of Imitation Game. It's sort of like with Alan Turing and I guess this is where I will just briefly jump into the history side of things he was apparently a bit of an awkward man, he was a big brain, but here he's shown to be borderline autistic. It's like Rain Man, and he wasn't like that at all. If you ask the people who actually knew him, it's not a fair reflection of him. It's a, it's a good reflection of his genius, and obviously it goes through the complexities of being a gay man at a time where it's punishable by imprisonment, which makes you vulnerable, potentially to blackmail, while you're working on the most secret project in probably... British intelligence history. 
I think I've done enough there. And as always, as I, so going back to it, this is something that Greg suggested, and it's sort of like, oh, such a good idea. It's been ages since I've done World War II. So thank you again, Greg. But it's a reminder to everybody. I take requests. I sat down with somebody that I knew really well, has a great love of history, who listens to the podcast all the time. He knows who he is. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. And we had a conversation. He goes, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? It's like, great. Yeah, keep them coming. You know, he ended up giving me three or four in the meeting or the lunch, I should say. And then, you know, he promises to send me more ideas. So it's like, yes, now that we're doing two a week, I need as many ideas as possible. Doesn't mean I sadly I can do all of them, but I really do try my best. Do say hi on Twitter. I'm at Gem Daduccio on Twitter. If you can subscribe, that'd be lovely. Thank you very much. And please, if you could leave us a review, that'd be great. And as I always say, it'd be great if you actually told one other actual human being, somebody in the office, something like that. Hey, I'm distracted and find this sort of interesting, maybe a little bit educational as well. Then, hey, please, that would be great. It helps us spread the word. Thank you. Right. Let's get into some sort of proper history stuff now. And so there is the completely forgotten Arthur Scherbius, a German in the 1920s, an engineer who creates the Enigma machine. And indeed, in 1923, he makes a commercially available version of it. So it predates World War II by decade and, and a half, basically. So it was out there in the market for quite some time. The German army actually bought it in 26. It is not a Nazi device. Obviously, it was used by the Nazi regime. But then what happens is in the polls are keeping their eye on what's going on in Germany. And I've heard a lot of people say we talk a lot about Bletchley Park, but 
why don't we talk about the Poles who were sort of like looking into this and trying to crack it before World War Two? And that's a valid point. But I think that also, whereas what they did was invaluable, they weren't doing it during the actual war, which is when we really needed it for obvious reasons. OK, Poland got captured as the first part of World War Two and you know, there was a huge amount of disruption to that country. Not everybody made it out alive. I'm not denigrating it, but I do think when people start going on and on about their specific country's contribution, the important thing, the important lesson to learn from World War Two is you need to work together to beat something like the pure evil of the Nazi party and, and forces. So I want to do, do my best with the name here, Marian Rajelski. I think that's how you would say his name. And in 32, basically, he's starting to sort of work through the complexities, trying to work out how these rotors work, etc., etc. And indeed, in the 20s into the 30s, the actual design of the Enigma machine became even more complex. So if you haven't seen it, let me explain. It basically looks like a typewriter. And what happens is you push one letter let's say the letter A, and you'll see it light up. There's a sort of like a, a, a keyboard above, which is just a simple light bulb underneath each letter, but it'll then light up a completely different letter, let's say C. And so you write down the letters it's illuminating, and then you send that message. And then because somebody at the other end of the message has got the same rotors set at the same way, they are able to descramble that and then turn it into an actual meaningful sentence. So like I say, it looks like a typewriter with that illuminated bit, but then behind the illuminated bit, there's this place for some cogs, basically rotors. And there are three different rotors which start scrambling these letters in multiple different ways. Now, to make it even more complicated, there are a total of five rotors. So you're picking three of the five, which changes every single day. And then in the front, just underneath the keyboard, you'll see the letters again with basically these little plugs with wires attached to them. And again, there are settings for those plugs. So you might plug the letter A into the letter W, for example. So you move things around. And so with that plug board with 10 different letters connected in it, plus the rotors which are being reset, it has a total of 159 quintillion different ways to scramble letters. So if you don't know what a quintillion is, because you're normal, like me, don't worry, I've done it for you, that is a 159 followed by 18 zeros. Now, again, if you're doing 1 million, that is a 1 followed by 6 zeros. So, yeah... It is 159 quintillion different variations, which, if you're going to turn it into programming power, is only 67 bits. What's a bit? Well, you have a thousand bits or bytes into a megabyte, and then you have a thousand megabytes into a gigabyte. So this is, if you like, the very basic building blocks of computer technology. 67 bits in the modern world wouldn't even be enough to do a minor update to your apps on your phone. The processing power of your phone is almost 
infinitely more powerful than what they had to play with in World War II. Now, before I sort of go into the, the code breaking or anything like that a little bit further, I just want to explain there is a difference between a coded message and a secret message, a cipher, which actually comes from the Arabic word zephyr, which is the Arabic for zero, by the way. It's also where we get the word zero from as well. And cryptography from cipher is the art of breaking these codes and turning it into something that you can see yourself. So a secret message, I love this fact, and people always put these in code books. It's sort of like, well, the ancient Greeks would sometimes send a code by getting a slave, shaving their head, tattooing a message onto their scalp, and then waiting for their hair to grow back and then sending them on their way. It's brilliant. Ingenious. Sadly, it wouldn't work on me because I don't have a luscious enough hair covering on the top of my head. But nobody's going to think to look there and only the other person knows where to look. And even the slave themselves, which is A, likely to be illiterate and B, can't see the top of their head, can even tell you what's there. And they're probably not going to because they certainly don't want to perhaps have their head cut off and be used as evidence or something like that. So it's really elegant and useful, except for the one obvious flaw that it can't be a quick message because you have to wait for their hair to grow back. I mean, it's probably going to take a month to at least start sending the message. And then they're moving at the speed of a slave or a human being rather than, you know, the speed of the internet or something like that. So that is a secret message. Once you've found the secret message, you're doomed because it might be on a little scroll of paper that might be tucked into your shoe or something like that. These sorts of things where it's like, if it's found, it's found and you're doomed. The interesting thing about cryptography is it's out in the open. Now, obviously, there are cases in the past where not only was it a secret message, but it was also put in codes. There's two layers, if you like, of secrecy, defense. First of all, I've got to find it, and then when I find it, I've got to crack it. What a brilliant and ingenious way of doing these sorts of things. But in the case of modern military communication, and in, indeed in the case of World War II, we could intercept radio waves coming from various German positions, but then it's in gibberish, and it's an extraordinarily complex encoded gibberish. Basically, at the beginning of World War II, the powers in Britain could find it, and occasionally they could crack it. But by the time their boffins were able to finally break the code, it was like month-old information. So it might be a critical phrase like, we're sending the troops across the bridge tonight. Well, we already knew that because we had the reports a month ago saying that those troops crossed that bridge. So it's absolutely useless. The problem with it is you had to crack it fast and no mathematician can do a problem of 159 quintillion different potentials fast. So they had to come up with, if you like, this was a mechanical means of garbling and, and hiding the message. So it was Turing that came up with the genius idea of like, let's get a machine. If the machine can mix it up, get a machine to unmix it. And he called these things bombs. Unknown why he decided to pick that name, because they in no way blew up. But the point is, they were mechanical. There are examples, they were all broken down at the end of World War II. And if you like, this is the important thing. Throughout World War II, the Germans thought that their Enigma machines hadn't been cracked, because this is the problem. As soon as you reveal that I know your code, you're just going to change your code, and now we're back to square one. So the trick is to intercept, and then also make people think that, ha ha ha, you, you didn't know that we could read the stuff all along. 
perhaps a famous example from World War One is the Zimmermann telegram, where again, the British intelligence had cracked the German codes. But they realized that if they showed that they were intercepting and cracking the German codes domestically, basically the Zimmermann telegram was a message from Germany to Mexico during World War One that basically said, hey, Mexico, if you invade America, we think America's about to attack us. So if you invade America and keep America busy so they're not going to join World War One, we'll supply weapons and equipment and so on and so forth. It's a pretty clever plan, but it was so obvious. It was such a bold statement by the Germans that when the Americans were first given this this plan, they just thought it was a British trick to just sucker them into joining the war. Again, another example about how America's taking a while to get involved in a world war there. But anyway, the clever thing here is they did not release any information about the original European message. Instead, they used the slightly different message, slightly corrupted message internally in Mexico between basically two German positions, including the embassy. So it looked like the code was safe, but what happened is somebody being bought off in Mexico. So it's a classic example of the Germans were looking in the wrong place. They didn't realize that the source was Britain and they were just sitting there happily reading all their stuff. Instead, they made it look like it's a problem with personnel in Mexico. Very clever. And so the thing with Enigma is they made sure that they would send out spotter planes so that, you know, how did the British or the Americans or whoever know that we had tanks over the ridge? Well, do you, do you remember that spotter plane from yesterday? They probably got it from that spotter plane. But that spotter plane was sent out basically to a place they already knew that there were enemy, which was dangerous. They could be shot out the sky. So people died to protect the story of Enigma for the rest of the world. And indeed, all these people working in these huts, they were all sworn to secrecy. So when I was growing up, I knew nothing about Enigma. It had become a completely forgotten thing. But then, when the Official Secret Act has basically a sell-by date of 50 years, so it wasn't till the 1990s that people could, in theory, talk about it without breaking their Official Secrets Act. There is a lovely story where... This one man sat down, this grandfather sat down with his family. When the books about Enigma started coming out, he basically said, well, I guess I can tell you that I was one of the people working in those huts and I was there to, to break the code. At which point, his wife, who had been married to for over 40 years, turned around and said, oh, well, I guess I can reveal that I was also there. And the two of them hadn't met at Bletchley. It's a large compound, by the way. There's no guarantee you're going to bump into everybody there. Literally, you know, a thousand plus people were there at Bletchley Park in its peak. And so these two people had kept this secret from each other for 50 years. That's a lovely story and a sign of how in the past people used to take confidentiality and like national interests and things like that really important. Why did it continue after World War II? The Nazis had been defeated. Well, yes, except the Enigma was still thought to be unbroken, so it was still being used by other countries, and in the meantime, the British could listen in and just to happily keep decoding the stuff. Clever. We're now into the world of spying, obviously. But the other thing about it is, while I've just said all this really impressive 159 quintillion, there were some ways in. There were some clues. And one of the things, one of the only things that an imitation game shows, is you don't need to translate the whole thing to crack the code. They started realizing that sometime, basically, you're dealing with human beings, and human beings become lazy. They get into a routine. So quite often, some of these people would sign off with 
just two letters, and they were basically HH for Heil Hitler. So once you knew that that was likely to be HH, and it might actually say WG, it's sort of like, okay, well, that's giving us a clue as to where the settings are right now. So you're kind of looking for clues and plans. When Bletchley Park was looking for code breakers, they couldn't obviously just write letters out to everyone going, hey, do you want to join this top secret organization? One of the things they did was got people to actually apply by doing crossword puzzles. Because they knew that, you, you know, the Times Crossroad or the Telegraph or the Daily Mail, etc., they all had their crosswords, but they were always set by the same people. So after a while, it wasn't truly random. It wasn't truly unknowable. You could start getting into the minds of these people and kind of guess what they might mean, or they might have kind of almost favorite little, little sort of like across and downs that they might sort of frequently use. A classic thing in America, where if it says British gun, it's always Bren, because that's from World War II, and it was a very distinctive-looking weapon, for example. But there was also a very clever, I'm just, just a sidebar here for a moment, in the New York Times, I'm going to say two, three years ago, there was a really clever crossword where the clue was, it was a cross, and it was basically the best sci-fi franchise. And if you wrote in Star Wars, or if you wrote in Star Trek, they both worked because they worked out with the other words as well that you could have, you know, the words that intersected it would work perfectly. How brilliant is that? So depending on whatever flavor of sci-fi you were. So again, that's not done by a computer. That's done by a human being. There's a sense of humor behind that little bit of code breaking there. And so, yes, it was about thinking about how are these German signal officers actually sending these codes, which might start giving us a clue. But then with these bombs, these were the first programmable computers. You could give them the rules for today, and then it would start just churning them out. And Churchill said this was the single most important thing in World War Two. And most people say that it definitely shortened the war because we kind of knew what the Germans were doing. Ultimately, the Germans were going to be defeated when you're up against the industrial might of the Soviet Union and America. And while we tend to think of the plucky Brits, what we tend to forget is Britain at that point was in charge of the world's largest empire, so it had a lot of resource. Britain itself was vulnerable. Places like Canada and India basically weren't. So with that in mind, I mean, colonies, etc. I digress. Apologies to the Canadians. You weren't actually part of the empire at that point. But anyway hopefully you get my point the issue there is that germany by comparison they did very well for a few years but then ultimately the momentum they lost the momentum and then they were up against giants that just could slowly stand up and push forwards that's what happened there but that pushing would have been slower if we couldn't be smart about where to attack and what the problems were with with the germans etc so yes it's really important the story of enigma and the world of codes is, is so interesting as well, and secret messages. Maybe I'll do another episode another time on some other secret messages. But in the meantime, what I would say is, I would avoid U571 personally. I think Enigma's a good Saturday night movie. I mean, there's nothing there really to offend anybody. And then The Imitation Game's perhaps the best known of the three of them. It's fine, and, and Cumberbatch is great in it, but just be aware that Alan Turing didn't actually act that way, but he was that smart. I guess that's the point to take or take it away from it. And it's great to talk about somebody. Yeah, obviously he was not known during his lifetime and what happened to him after the war when he was forced to take various hormones. That was a, a thing. I love the fact that this ongoing, I'm going to say myth, I think it's being debunked, but the sign of Apple is obviously an apple with a bite taken out of it. 
And there was this rumour that Steve Jobs used that as a nod to Alan Turing, who seems to have committed suicide by putting poison in an apple and then eating the apple or taking a bite out of it. It could have been an accident for that. And also it could have meant something else, you know, just rather than just having an apple symbol, just having a bite out of it shows it's fresh and good, just like the Apple computers or something like that. Like I say, I think it's been largely debunked, but, you know, Turing now is kind of a cool person. He, you know, it, he's a gay man that helped during a war. That That's not a phrase you use very often. So in terms of representation, that helps in, in that scenario. And like I say, looking at smart women, good at mathematics, you get that in this story as well. So it is something a bit different from the usual charging up a beach and shooting the Germans. And therefore, I think that Enigma was incredibly important and therefore absolutely valid to have movies and TV shows about it. But I'm just going to say the perfect one has still has yet to be made. That's it for now. Another podcast coming soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.